0: All right, David, thanks so much for speaking.
1: It's my pleasure. I'm Joe. Good to see you. Thanks.
0: How are you doing today?
1: I've had a good day. I had 18 holes of golf earlier this morning. Yeah. yeah. Good for my
0: exercise. Good fresh air. Awesome. That sounds like a good day so far. So David, you've had a really interesting career in the technology space. Just before we get into some of your story, it would be good if you could tell me a little bit about the work um, and the organisational work that you're currently involved in at the moment and kind of bring people up to speed.
1: So what I'm doing now is I'm a writer, a presenter, I host events all around understanding future possibilities. How can we discriminate between the science fiction and the science less fictional? What are the possible consequences of the technologies that people are hearing about. So these are the kinds of events and discussions that I'm hoping to progress, and I have a network of people in London Futurists, nearly 9,000 people there now, and they attend various online meetings, and I also write about what I have discovered and the issues that I believe deserve more attention.
0: And you also have another consultancy, a consultancy business called Delta Wisdom. That's that correct. Right? Yeah. So occasionally
1: yeah. I get involved in work with companies, businesses or individuals who wish to hire me to give a presentation, facilitate some of their workshops, to do some uh, research tailored to their individual needs.
0: Great. And you're... I found on your LinkedIn profile, you seem to be kind of a member of a few different other organizations. Can you say a bit about those, The transhumanist one and and a few things like that?
1: So I sit on the board of an organization called the IET, that's the Institute for Ethics and Emerging Technologies, which is a techno-progressive think tank that was established nearly 20 years ago now and it does the same as what I'm really interested in, namely it uh, looks at issues arising from emerging technologies. So I sit on the board of that. I also co-founded an activist organization called Transhumanist UK. So rather than just looking at future possibilities and trying to evaluate them, transhumanism says, well, there are some particular futures that are desirable, and they're possible, And we should do what we can to accelerate these good futures. So we can talk more later about what transhumanism involves. But it's enhancing human capabilities, not just in an incremental way, which means I might hit the golf ball uh, a little bit further and more accurately, but we might live much longer than we currently do. We might uh, be much smarter than we currently are and less depressed and so on.
0: Okay, great. So it would be good to kind of go back to the start um, before we get into some more of that. So can you tell me a bit about when you first realized you were interested in technology and how you got interested in, in everything like this?
1: Well, like many young child, I was fascinated by the science fiction section of my local library. I think I read all of the books in science fiction in the children's section and progressed as soon as I could into the adult section too. So I was Interested, as most people were in the 1960s, in the possibilities of humans landing on the moon and then going to Mars, having flying cars and big thinking brains that might one day outperform humans in all kinds of intellectual tasks. So I was interested in that. I got uh, my first degree in mathematics. My uh, second subject that I studied was the philosophy of science. And then I applied some of that in the field of software engineering. A friend of mine said to me, David, you've got a good brain. You should learn C, which was a programming language that was uh, significant in the middle 1980s. So I got a job sort of accidentally at a high tech company called Scion, that's P-S-I-O-N, who were making organisers. And when I got there, I suddenly realized it's a much more interesting company than I had expected. They were actually creating devices that weren't just of interest to yuppies, that's young upward mobile professionals, but actually they had all kinds of good applications in them. That meant that people didn't need old fashioned address books, that meant they could have better alarm clocks, better calendar managements, and all kinds of things. So I joined that group there. And it was quite clear that these devices would improve in leaps and bounds over the years ahead. They wouldn't just remain in their present format. And as well as discussing with my colleagues in Scion technical questions like how could we write really efficient software that was robust and wouldn't crash in awkward ways, wouldn't run out of memory. We also discussed from time to time, well, what are the applications that people are going to want to use when the devices are more powerful, when they're larger. And what do we need to do to anticipate that? So without realizing it, I was once again a futurist, not as a young boy anticipating going to Mars, as it were, but as a hired engineering manager, working out which skills should we anticipate would be important a year or two down the line. So in due course, Scion gave rise to a company called Symbian, which was spun out. It was bought or invested in by the three giants of the mobile phone world in 1998. That's Nokia, Ericsson and Motorola, who had about 13 to 18 percent of the phone market each. In These long ago days, they invested in a unit in Scion called Scion Software, valuing it at 100 million pounds and we had at that time about 150 employees. And we focused from then on at not just mobile computers in general, but at a crazy new idea called smartphones, that one day people wouldn't have ordinary mobile phones, people would have devices that would fit in their pockets that would keep everybody connected and would also give them access on the move to the internet and to all sorts of messaging and all sorts of other apps. And in Symbian for a while I ran technical consulting, but in due course I ended up responsible for research and innovation, which again is a futurist role, thinking well what are the threats coming up? What are the things that would change our business? What are the things that could put us out of business? What are the things that we can take advantage of in due course which at one particular time wouldn't be ready, but if we acquired skills in it would be very significant a year or two's time later. So I spent four years as head of research for Symbian. Mm-hmm. And that led me, around about the same time, 2008, to become involved with a discussion group. It was called Extra Britannia. Actually, I'd been going there for three years, so I missed that bit of the story out. But I had met people through an online search who were very interested not just in what the future of mobile phones would do, but what the future of humanity could be if we really applied these technologies in a thoughtful and profound way. So this was sometimes called the UK Transhumanist Association, sometimes called Britannia. Extro refers to a term called extropy, which is the opposite of entropy. Entropy is a scientific concept that basically says if you leave things to themselves, they'll tend to fall to pieces. They will become less ordered, more messed up. That's the way of the world. But life fights against that tendency towards entropy. So some early transhumanist philosophers, including Max Moore, coined this term, extropy, as the opposite of entropy and said we should do what we can to understand extropy and support it. So that's why this organization was called Extra Britannia. I attended their meetings and in 2008, as I mentioned, I became responsible for running it since the previous founder had stepped down. He had family issues and he was moving further away from London. I said I'd run it for three months until it was time for somebody else to take over. but But that's now 13 years ago and it changed its name to London Futurist along the way.
0: Brilliant. Okay. So you said you were very interested in science fiction. That was one of the ways you got started. What was it about science fiction and the stories you read that captured your attention so much? You think led you here. What were some of your favorite stories maybe?
1: Well, I was interested in stories about uh, artificial intelligence. Who can replace a man? I can't remember the author. Probably should remember the author. It might be Asimov or it might be Bradbury. But... The fact that there could be AIs or robots with different calibres of brains, brain calibre 7 or 8, brain calibre 5, 4, 3, 2, and the 2s would be running cities and the brains of calibre 1 would be running the whole world. But still in there, there was a role for something different that humans had, which the AIs or robots couldn't have. So that was one example that stuck in my mind. There was another story about a planet which was visited where people somehow got by without money. And this was explored. Well, what what if people cheat? What if people take advantage of the generosity of everybody else? Well, they'll soon be found out and they they won't be able to survive. So that was uh, an exploration not just of future technology but of alternative social systems. So, of course, these stories are told partly to expand the minds of listeners, but also for entertainment purposes. So just because something's in a science fiction story doesn't mean it can be achieved, of course. But then I became more interested, well, what is possible and what isn't possible? I said I studied mathematics, but I didn't really give my reason for studying mathematics. It was my first love, as I sometimes say, because it's a wonderful, pure subject. But I was particularly interested to understand Science. And the language of science is mathematics. In order to understand things like general relativity or quantum mechanics, you need a heck of a lot of mathematics. A lot of pure mathematics as well as so-called applied mathematics. So that's why I studied that, because I wanted to understand properly what science could do. I wanted to understand the implications of quantum mechanics, which is quite a weird thing. Mm. It says that in a sense, reality is fuzzier than we might expect and that definiteness arises from observations and measurements Uh, that in some sense, these observations and measurements can have non-local implications that when a piece of some physical apparatus is inspected in one location, indeterminacy at another location uh, collapses and it can become uh, known what the result will be in the other place. So what on earth does this mean? So I was very interested in that. I was very interested at the same time in the possibilities that science would support parapsychology. Parapsychology is the idea that there might be telepathy, there might be telekinesis, there might be life after death, there might be access to spirits via mediumship and... Many people said, well, don't be stupid. This is against the laws of physics. And other people said, aha, not so fast. Physics, general relativity, and quantum mechanics is actually much more open-minded as regards these things. So that's why I studied, because I wanted to understand what would be possible in the future.
0: Mm. And then you studied philosophy of science after mathematics. What was the idea with uh, the slight change in course there to philosophy?
1: Well... I studied mathematics in order to make sense of quantum mechanics and other aspects of science. I I realized that the mathematics, even the physics, was not going to answer these questions. Most of the professors of quantum mechanics said, don't ask these questions, it's not productive to ask these questions, people who ask these questions don't make any progress. Look, the field of the philosophy of quantum mechanics hasn't made any progress since Niels Bohr and Albert Einstein had famous debates back in the 1920s and 1930s. And that was generally good advice. It's sometimes called the shut up and calculate approach to quantum mechanics. Yes, there are some strange puzzles figuring out the relationship between this mathematical entity, the wave function, and reality. At one level, it's clearly a description, but on the other hand, there is no more complete description. Because if you have more complete description... Then you end up in paradoxes which uh, Einstein uh, put forward. So I realized the answers to that question were probably not going to come from the mathematics or physics department. In Cambridge at the time, where I was, there was a department, I think it's still there, called the Department of Applied Mathematics and Theoretical Physics. I realized the answers to the meaning of quantum mechanics would probably require at least some more philosophical insight. And I was very grateful to study philosophy of science. What I learned there, I keep applying 40 plus years later. It helps to distinguish what's good science and what's bad science, what's fake science, to use a modern version of it. When you have people apparently dressed and looking like scientists, apparently using scientific language, language of statistics, the language of formulas, but actually what they're saying is not science. How can we say that? Well, there are principles as to distinguish good science from just uh, idle metaphysics or uh, wishful thinking. And that's what the philosophy of science also Mm
0: -hmm.
1: contributes. Mm -hmm. I think it's incredibly important today that we are skilled in figuring out when scientists speak, to what extent are their comments grounded in true science and to what extent are they potentially misleading themselves and misleading others by making stronger claims than the science itself warrants.
0: Is there any other ways you think your study of philosophy is, is helpful these days and when you're thinking about the future in writing, as opposed to just purely having learned science before that? Because there's a lot of people who learn science but don't learn much philosophy. How I'm a big fan of philosophy.
1: Yeah. We need philosophical methods, philosophical skills to break free from some of the mental patterns we have inherited, which are in society as a whole, which may have been useful in the past, but which constrain us in unhelpful ways today. So often when people find out about possible applications of new technology, they shudder, they say, yuck, this is awful, this is unnatural, this uh, must be resisted, it's against human nature. And the philosophical arguments come in and say, well, just because something's natural, it doesn't mean we should support it. This is uh, David Hume. You can't get an an ought from an is. You need to bring other things into that discussion as well. And I further think that uh, the lack of a credible, engaging philosophy today is at the root of so many of our social and psychological ailments because people's horizons collapse. In the past, they may have uh, been happy to be part of a perceived higher cause, often from religion, sometimes from their nation, but today, many fewer people can uh, give credence to the religious formalisms that have been passed down. Some do, some uh, find uh, it very credible, but many fewer people disconnect from that. And as a result, what fills their minds? What fills their motivations? Well, often it's uh, more material things. It's uh, more consumer basis. It's uh, making money. Why? Because that's the root of all ability to do other things, isn't it? And I think we, uh, as a society, do need a new, engaging, credible philosophy, which I will name as uh, transhumanism. It is something that uh, initially strikes people, some people, as strange and counterintuitive, but uh, I think with philosophical thinking, we can help people to
0: understand that it makes a great deal of sense. Could you lay out some of the key ideas behind transhumanism and what it is, and maybe some of the pro- kind of pro arguments for, for, for it, for supporting it? So the word
1: trans in transhumanism means beyond. It's also connected with transcend, which means to go beyond limits. And the idea is that a new species is sort of being born, which will be as different from today's humans as humans are from apes. Now that evolution from apes to humans took millions of years. But the new species, we can call it transhumanists, post-humanists perhaps, depending how far that evolution goes, will also be very different from today's humans. And this can happen much faster. And it won't happen by blind natural selection, nature read in tooth and claw, in the words of Tennyson, the poet it will happen by intelligent design. And when I say intelligent design, I mean humans drawing on the best of collective insight, collective wisdom, to figure out how to change our species. And when I say change our species, in part it could be changing our genetics, but in part it could be reprogramming our brain, in part it will be applying new techniques and therapies and treatments to our bodies, It will also be changes in our minds by thoughtful use of substances, and it will also restructure our society. So some transhumanists talk about a 5S future, five supers, super longevity, meaning that thanks to progress with nanotechnology and biotechnology, we will no longer age and we can reverse aging and live in a youthful state indefinitely. Super intelligence, which means we'll no longer be hostage to many of the cognitive mistakes that we often do make because of evolutionary pressures. And thanks to artificial intelligence, thanks also to neurotech or cognotech, as it's sometimes called, we will enhance our brains. Then there's super happiness, which recognizes that evolution did not put us on Earth particularly to be happy. It gave us other motivations, namely to acquire resources so that we could uh, have a good chance of uh, bringing another generation into existence and looking after them so they could propagate the gene line. And evolution doesn't care if we are depressed or egotistical, envious, divisive. Uh, That's why sadly many people end up quite miserable, quite depressed, alienated. Well, with the right genetic changes, with the right nootropic substances with practices such as yoga and meditation but enhanced by good technologies we could reach what transhumanists call super happiness that's the third s then there's a transformation of our social structures from today's quite ineffective democracy with all its troubles to what is sometimes called the super democracy in which the best insights of all humans will be supported and brought to the surface rather than the insights or the opinions of the loudest and most powerful. And the age-old tendency towards abusing power, you know the famous phrase, power tends to corrupt, absolute power corrupts absolutely. We see that on small scale and we see that on large scale. But with the application of various technologies and tools, we could transcend that to super democracy. And the thing that makes it all possible is a super abundance, that with the right use of clean technologies, we will have an abundance of clean energy, an abundance of material goods, healthy food, all kinds of things that are necessary for what I call a sustainable super abundance. So that's quite a lot different from what we're living today, and in some sense, we can see it as an, uh, just uh, an enlargement, I think is more profound than that. It's a phase change. It's like when you raise the temperature of water. You can see it getting more and more agitated. When it reaches 100 degrees, something totally different happens. So I believe in the same way that as we apply the technologies of the fourth industrial revolution, nanotech, biotech, infotech, and cognatech, as we reach towards the fifth industrial revolution in which artificial intelligence reaches the level of artificial general intelligence, we can uplift ourselves in a very profound way to leave behind the traumas
0: that I've discussed. Mm -hmm. You talked about people's reaction to transhumanism and related ideas is sometimes quite often actually full of, quite surprised and people a little bit... Um, shocked and claim it to be unnatural and this kind of stuff. How have your friends and family taken to some of your opinions and views? If, if, you, t- if you tell them about what, the fact that you're a transhumanist, what do they think about that?
1: Well, there is sometimes a curiosity when I talk about the possibility of abolishing ageing. People sometimes say, yeah, well, hurry up and do it, you know, I hope it's going to come in time for me or other members of the family. So there is often a, a cautious interest. Where there is less of an enthusiasm is the idea that there should be a philosophy, a movement, an ism. People will say, why do you need a movement? Why don't you just go ahead and do it? As people will say, the best transhumanists are actually the people don't talk about transhumanism. They actually just enhance the technology. They figure out the therapies that will lead us towards super longevity, super intelligence, and so on. But I think we do need a movement. I think people need to have questions answered. They will naturally think, oh, hang on, if we're all living longer, won't that mean, and there's about 12 common questions that people come up with, as to, well, won't that mean some terrible consequence? They may say... It will be good for us as individuals, but you've got to look at it from the social point of view, from the environmental point of view, and it'll be bad too. So you need to have a set of answers ready. And you can't just say, oh, let's just do it. Let's just develop the science. Uh, In fact, very much we need to be able to explain why are we doing it and have we thought through the consequences, not just in terms of material well-being, but what it's going to do to us as thinking human beings, thinking, feeling... Uh, be, uh, creatures. So we do need to look at their philosophy. And I think actually when people grasp this new philosophical possibility it can change their lives. People's lives have been changed in the past when they have uh, adopted a new philosophical stance often a religious stance. To some extent there is some similarity between transhumanism and religion. It talks about very profound things. To another extent, it's quite different. Some people are nervous. They say, well, it looks like a religion to me. And I say, well, it's uh, different from a religion because there are no dogmas. There is no absolute authority. There is no Pope. There is no Bible. Of course, there are books that we like to encourage people to read, but there are probably mistakes in all of these books. And any one transhumanist figure should not be followed regardless. So transhumanist principles include openness. There's a fundamental thing rather than, well, you've got to take this on faith.
0: Mm-hmm. Are there any ideas in the, tra- in the kind of common transhumanist movement that you're not so sure about that you, that if they were to come true, you'd think, well, I'm not so sure that would actually be a good thing?
1: So, transhumanism, dare I say it, is a broad church in the colloquial sense of church. There are people with quite a few different views in it, and that's fine there is the view that the best future for us as humans is not just to have our bodies enhanced, to live longer in our existing bodies, possibly with new limbs or possibly with replacement organs, an artificial heart, artificial lungs and so on, but that we should actually take the mind out of our brains and put the minds into a more permanent substrate such as silicon or some cloud. And it's not clear to me that that will be desirable. And in fact, many transhumanists will say they are not yet convinced that that is the right thing to do. And there is philosophy in this, of course, which is that if a copy is made of us, if our mind could be copied, there's another question as could this be done? People say, well, in due course, we will understand the brain sufficiently that we can copy all the patterns from the brain. If we can instantiate that in another structure... Would that be me? Would I be content? If there was a process to suck everything out of my mind and then put it in uh, another device, and then I was killed as a result of that, would I be happy to be killed? Thinking, well, it's all right. I will continue in this new form. And I am not convinced by that yet. So I am not gonna rush into that upgrade anytime soon other transhumanists sort of take it for granted and say oh you're all making a philosophical mistake it's obvious that it would be you and you point out there could be multiple copies of you and they say well that's all right there'll be multiple copies of me they'll all be me Mm. so that's interesting and there are lots of philosophical discussions but I am not yet ready I am waiting to have a clearer understanding of sentience and consciousness than I think we presently do have I don't think we're that far away from it I think There is lots of progress being made by writers such as Anil Seth, who's based here in the UK, I think at Sussex. Very interesting book he came up with recently called Being You. There is a South African based writer called Mark Solms who had another fascinating book on the meaning of consciousness, the root inside the brain of consciousness. He argues, by the way, it's not in the neocortex at all. It's in a much more fundamental part of the brain, the brainstem. And we're not yet at the end of that discussion, but there is progress being made. And it might be that I have to wait for AIs to get cleverer than humans, and AIs will then sit me down and explain consciousness. And they might convince me that, yes, it's going to be all right to be upgraded onto the cloud, uploaded onto cloud, or they might convince me, no, I shouldn't. And I wait for that discussion, but I'm not rushing into that
0: Okay, so we talked about transhumanism. So I wanted to ask you about your role as a, as a futurist and uh, director of London Futurists. So what does it mean to be a futurist, first of all? What does that term mean?
1: It means to take seriously the value of uh, looking at scenarios about what might come. It's not about forecasting with any precision what absolutely will happen. Well, there are a few things you can forecast precisely, the timing of eclipses, due to astronomical laws. But even if you look ahead to an eclipse, it isn't clear ahead of time whether you're gonna see it because even within a few hours of the eclipse, it could be unsure whether clouds will be in the way. This is a personal story of mine. In 1999, I traveled with my family to see the solar eclipse in Luxembourg. We thought that's a nice place to go. We had a family holiday there, but even a few minutes before, we didn't know how much we would see because of the uncertainty of meteorology, when a small little change can easily be compounded. Uncertainty in initial conditions. The famous phrase is a butterfly will flap its wings on one side of the world and a tornado will result, or not, depending on how the butterfly flaps its wings. That might be a little exaggeration, but there's certainly a lot of magnification of uncertainty, especially when humans are involved. futurists are not in the business of saying definitely in 2043 this is going to happen and definitely in 2025 this is going to happen but we are we are in the business of helping people to think through these scenarios uh, helping people to overcome their future shock which can either be a three-letter word called wow this will be wonderful wouldn't it or another three-letter word yuck oh gosh this is going to be horrible isn't it Often these instincts are based on very poor basis. They are extrapolating from our past into the future. And in fact, uh, we might need to think much harder about, well, this sounds good, but there could be lots of drawbacks to it. And this sounds horrible, but maybe actually it wouldn't be too bad after all. I remember when test tube babies were a very controversial subject in the late 1970s. Many, many people said, yuck, is how abominable. Imagine a young child growing up and learning that mum and dad made them in a test tube. How horrible. They would have psychological scars all their lives, and so on. And the Catholic Church, some parts of the Catholic Church at the time, also said, yuck, there will be soulless little devils. And many other people applied a different philosophical stance. They said, well, we've already got too many people in the world, frankly and we shouldn't be doing anything. If God has decreed that a couple can't have babies the natural way, then we should not be intervening on God's choices. But then Louise Brown was born, and a lot of that yuck changed. People saw that this baby seemed to be as soulful as any other baby, and could bring as much pleasure to that family as other children conceived in the traditional way. So there's an example. And we have to help people overcome their initial biases to think objectively. It doesn't mean to say we, the, the yuck is wrong. It means we have to find more rational reasons to oppose things or more rational reasons to say, well, this is attractive after all, despite some initial reservations.
0: So it must be exciting thinking about a lot of these future scenarios. But on the other hand, does it ever do, do any of the... Of the um... Things you're you're pondering about fill you with terror or anxiety. Ever some of the things that could go wrong. Is it what's it like being a futurist? Is there, is what I'm asking. Well, there
1: is a lot of uh, terror. There are a lot of ways in which society technology could go cataclysmically wrong. So, in some of my writing, I talk about eleven landmines. These are things that could blow up literally or metaphorically en route to the possible sustainable future, sustainable superabundance that is within our grasp. So nuclear weapons is one obvious example. Back in the news again recently, it could be a deliberate uh, intervention. It could be an accidental intervention. The world could have had a nuclear missiles launched in, I think, 1983. There was a Soviet monitoring post and they had an artificial intelligence, very crude at the time, monitoring what seemed to be the signals from satellites over the North Pole. And the AI said, hey, a um, nuclear attack is underway from uh, Americans. Uh, escalate, call the Kremlin, get them to take the decision to fight back. Now, the person in the Kremlin that time, I remember right was Yuri Andropov and he in his very early days had uh, seen Stalin being slow to respond to news that Hitler was invading. Stalin was sure that he knew that Hitler wasn't going to invade uh, Russia in when was it 1941 and uh, when the news came through that an attack was underway Stalin didn't pay any attention to that for a long time, and as a result, uh, Russia was the Soviet Union experienced terrible casualties. So Andropov was resolved: if there was information about a nuclear threat, he was going to counterattack as quickly as possible. But the humans in that process, one of them was a civilian rather than a military person. The military people all said, "Well, do what you were supposed to do. Tell the bosses." And the civilian was skeptical about the IT. He said, this doesn't seem right to me. If America really is attacking, why just send one missile? Oh. And then the AI said, well, there's three or four missiles. He said, it doesn't seem right to me. So he didn't escalate. And we didn't have a nuclear war as a result. And he was proven right. It turns out that there'd been a malfunction in that satellite system. There weren't enough satellites. Up there, some of them had not been activated and they were misinterpreting some reflection of light from the sun off the snows of the Arctic. So now we could have more of that. We could have uh, disaffected groups, ISIS or son of ISIS or daughter of ISIS or other disaffected people who feel the world deserves to die because they are just too terrible. And people do sometimes on the way out, when they're suicidal, they bring down aeroplanes. A German co-pilot of a flight a few years ago uh, was very depressed. He was losing his eyesight. He realized he would lose his role soon. And he used technology, the technology of the automatic lock on the door. So when his senior pilot went out to the toilet, he locked the door behind him and then he used another bit of technology called autopilots to program the craft to fly right into the heart of the nearest mountain. Everybody on board died. What a crazy thing to do. Well, sadly, a small number of people are sometimes doing crazy things. So when I contemplate the combination of these people who are alienated, frustrated, feeling left behind, when I contemplate the range of weapons to which they have access airplanes, some people have access to nuclear weapons, some people will access to bioweapons, chemical weapons, some people will inflict uh, damage to IT systems. It could be terrible, and there's plenty more. So if I look ahead to 2050, if I work out the probability we'll be in a very bad world by then, it's something like 30%. There are many things that could go wrong. I don't think that's the most likely outcome. I think something like a 60% chance we'll be living in a much, much better world then than now. We will have used these technologies to overcome the threats and challenges and landmines. And we have built a kind of paradise on earth with people well on the way away from human limitations towards a transhumanist future. And that's something like a 60% chance. But that 30% probability of a cataclysm of any of 11 sorts, is far too large for me to be comfortable with. In fact, even a 3% chance would be far too large. If somebody said before I got on an aeroplane, well, there's a 3% chance that between here and uh, North America is going to fall out of the water. That's far too high a risk to take. And there is a, a very small statistical chance currently that the aeroplane will fall out of the sky, but it's less than the chance you'll be killed in a car accident. So we... We all say that's all right. But if you go raise it to 3% or even 30%, that's unacceptable. So futurism is very much in the business of trying to evaluate existential risks, which ones are for real, which ones are just some Hollywood uh, dystopia fantasy that we can discount. And what can we do about it?
0: Has thinking about the risks or the great possibilities about future is, about the future affected your day-to-day life much at all outside of work your personal life how you feel in the world has it had much to affect that or is it does it does it just say more for your career and the rest is separate
1: well the possibilities of new treatments being available in maybe 10 or 20 years time that would allow people to be rejuvenated there's a reason why i want to remain healthy and fit one reason i went to play golf this morning mm-hmm. quite enjoy playing golf i probably would have enjoyed right sitting at home writing uh, some more articles better but uh, you know it's uh, important to keep healthy and fit mm-hmm. because if we can live a bit longer we have the chance to live indefinitely long mm-hmm. so that changes how i spend my time and the threat of cataclysmic disaster does influence how I read the news. So what's happening as we're doing this recording is arguably explained in part by some of the general principles that uh, people, groups of people countries, regimes feel left behind. They feel Some lack of respect, lack of possible future progress, and that makes them angry, it makes them irrational, it makes them prone to do things which they haven't fully thought through but which could have terrible consequences. And that's what's happening in Ukraine at this very moment, and it's unclear how that will happen. So I don't want to impose my theoretical framework on everything. I think it's a mistake to be too much of a, sometimes it's called a, Tortoise, that you have only one thing that you know about and you use that to make sense of everything. We need to be more like a hare. This is a famous philosophical distinction. Isaiah Berlin, the philosopher, talked about the, sorry, not the hare, the fox. I've got this completely wrong. It's the fox who, and the hedgehog. Right, so forget about the, the, the tortoise and the hare. That's something totally different. That's whether it's appropriate to go fast or slow. I want to talk instead about the fox and the hedgehog. The hedgehog knows one thing and knows it very well, whereas the fox knows many things. And is it wise, better to be a fox who figures out lots of things, or a hedgehog who is in charge of this one profound insight? Well... There is research by people like Philip Tetlock and a fascinating book called Superforecasters that the people who are able to have better predictive skills are fox-like in that they are willing to look at things from multiple points of view, not to try and superimpose a single philosophical lens some people say well the big philosophical point is that capitalism is flawed or somebody else will say a big philosophical framework is that we must support free market at all costs if it turns out if you that's your big frame you will often make wrong predictions according to the research that philip Tetlock and others have accumulated so i don't want just to impose my transhumanist thinking and everything i see but I do believe that it is uh, insightful and I believe it does uh, show things in a broader perspective. So I argue in my book that it's important to be a hedgehog about the most important things, which is the big potential future for humanity and the big risks that lie ahead and the fact that the difference between that better future and that worse future will come down to actions that individual humans take. So that's the very important principles that I will hold to but at the same time, it's important to be more of a uh, fox, or sometimes called a polymath, which you can look around and find insight from multiple points of view.
0: Mm-hmm. So, apart from science, philosophy, technology, what, do you, what what are some examples of things you you try and read about to broaden your perspective? Do you read much history? Do you read what are, what are some other things you do?
1: Well, I think history is a very important subject. I often say that the best foresight comes from having better hindsight. You need to look at what actually happened in the past. There are theories of the future, which are often one dimensional, and they will often draw upon stories of the past to bolster them. But frequently, the stories they tell of the past are far too simple. And they will say, well, of course, there are simplifications and they are telling the essential truth in what they say. But I believe a lot of what's missed out in these stories is critical. So often what's missed out is the human contribution to uh, determining what happens. Sometimes people will say, well, it's the iron laws of history. We are on this trajectory in which technology is indefinitely going to get better. Look, that's the story of... History and the actions of individual humans, institutions, didn't make much difference. And I say that's totally wrong. The actions of individual humans, the thoughts that humans had, the institutions that humans had, the cultures that we had often did determine what happened and what didn't happen. And so it is appropriate, very necessary to read history. Mm -hmm. And in my own writing, my most recent book, Uh, vital foresight. There are lots of historical stories as to what actually happened and I try and draw my conclusions from there and I claim that these insights are more fully grounded, fully grounded in a rounder view of humanity that sees the economic dimension, the philosophical and psychological dimensions, the social dimensions, the gender dimensions, as well as just the fact that technology by itself can improve in feedback cycles.
0: Mm-hmm. Speaking about influential individuals and how much they can change things, who are some people on earth at the moment that you think may determine, for better or for worse, I suppose, the, the future of humanity? Who are some people that stand out?
1: Well, we should point to talk about Demis Hassabis, who is the founder of DeepMind, now a part of Google. And DeepMind is the company that is probably most likely to create artificial general intelligence, if you have to figure one out. DeepMind drawing upon the insights of Google as a whole, but with a fascinating set of ideas that they're developing. And it's not just one idea, by the way. Sometimes people say all they're doing is simple statistical inference. Deep neural networks are just some complicated piece of matrix mathematics. That's not true at all. There's a lot more in what DeepMind are doing. It's a combination of deep neural networks and lots of other things like deep reinforcement learning and some good old fashioned artificial intelligence of a classical type. So they're bringing it together in interesting ways. The mission statement of DeepMind is sometimes stated as one, solve intelligence, two, use intelligence to solve all the other problems in the world. And if you ask what's meant by these other problems, they will talk about climate change, the distribution of resources in a way that's fair and just, solution to diseases such as dementia and cancer and ageing. And we humans are making some progress, but not very much on these questions. But if we have a better intelligence, then we can solve these problems more fully. And if you read what motivates Demis and his background in the games industry, his background in virtual reality, I think his uh, insights are profound. And I think what is happening in DeepMind is revolutionary. They have a lot of neuroscientists engaged as well as a lot of mathematicians. They are learning as much as they can from better insights into the human brain. So there's one person Actually, a group of people, but he is the, the first among equals and a remarkable set of people at DeepMind who might be bringing about artificial general intelligence sooner than is generally understood. I could also point to Max Tegmark, who is a theoretical physicist, who has written widely on implications of theoretical physics, a marvelous book called the mathematical universe i may have got the name wrong but uh, it looks at the history of science and uh, has big insights into four levels of multiverse in the cosmos but in the course of his research he like me was fascinated at the risks that could prevent uh, us uh, seeing our long-term destiny in the cosmos things that will get in the way So he created the Future of Life Institute based out of various universities in the Boston area in New England. And what they're doing is profound as well. And he wrote another book, uh, Life 3.0, I think. So Life 1 is when it was just the hardware that was changing. Life 2 is when the software was changing too. That's a mind evolution passed to mind and life 3 if I remember correctly, is when technology is part of the mix too. And that's an organization which has got significant funding behind it, which is raising the caliber of thinking about the same kinds of things that I worry about. So what Max Tegmark is doing there is profound. There are other such organizations, one in the UK, in Oxford, headed by Nick Bostrom, who co-founded in 1998 what is the world's largest global transhumanist community, called initially the World Transhumanist Association. So he has written profoundly as well on any of these same topics.
0: Have you met either of these three individuals or been at an event with them? Yes, I've met all three.
1: I've met all three. And in fact, before DeepMind was publicly announced, one of the co-founders of DeepMind, Shane Legg, I think he's from New Zealand, he did his research, partly in Switzerland and partly at UCL, he gave a talk at London Futurists in, I think, 1999. No, I'm sorry, 2009. Get my decades wrong there. Which was uh, recorded, but uh, in these days you could only put 10 minutes of videos up to YouTube at a time. So if, and it was recorded from the side. So if I'd been really smart and if I'd been interested in making money, I might have invested in DeepMind at that time. And Demis has been to at least one of the London Futurist events when Robin Hansen uh, was speaking. Robin was one of the, he's an economist, a philosopher, also in the transhumanist world. And he gave a talk about his view of the future. Uh, Jan Tallon. Yeah, the two of them did a double act at a London Futurist event. Jan Tallon, he's the one who was the early investor in DeepMind, he made his uh, money in Skype. He was the founding technical genius behind Skype. So he has invested in quite a few of these uh, existential risk foundations, and he invested early in DeepMind. So when these two gave a talk, Robin Hanson and Jan Talon, there were a whole bunch of people from DeepMind there, not that I knew it at the time, but again, I can see that from the recordings. Mm -hmm. In terms of Nick Bostrom, he has spoke at my events on several occasions and I have good links to many of the people in the Future of Humanity Institute. They are doing some fascinating work and there is a speaker from there speaking at a London Futurist event in April. I think it's April the 23rd on Future Superhuman. Future human, Future Superhuman. And her point of view, the speaker, It's Elise Bohan, a senior research scholar there, is much the same as mine, although she expresses it in very interesting alternative language, is that uh, this is a make or break century and we must wisely hurry up and develop some technologies and even merge with it in order to fight off the landmines, as I would call them, which threaten our future.
0: Did you get any interesting insight into the minds of either Demis, Nick, or Max when you met them?
1: So they're all remarkable individuals in their various ways. I can't say that I have a particular insight into either of them. I aren't that close to them, but uh, they are all in various ways uh, to be admired and to be learned from. Nick is the one I probably know most out of the three. He is very thoughtful, very careful, very philosophical. He has written extensively in the 1990s on many of the issues that still deserve attention today. He wrote a fable, the Fable of the Dragon Tyrant, in which... There was a country in which everybody realized they had to, everybody was told there's a terrible dragon living in the mountain and every year it demands it eats a certain number of people of all ages. And if it was ignored, it would come and destroy everybody. And so in the society, everybody accepted. it. It's a metaphor. The dragon is a metaphor for aging and death. And uh, there is a video by CPG Gray, uh, amongst others, who have animated this, so Nick shows there his wide, uh, right, wider field. I believe he's studied as a stand-up comedian at one stage, though he wouldn't, he wouldn't guess that by looking at his normal communication style. But uh, he is a rich, and uh, wide personality, and what he has written twenty years ago. 25 years ago still stands up to scrutiny in many ways today even though now we have a much better understanding of how the technology in various details might play out.
0: Mm-mm. Now there may not be one but as a futurist and with all the work you do is there a typical week for you or how do you organize and how, how do you organize your time? Most weeks?
1: Well, maybe half weeks. I have a London futurist event on a Saturday at 4 p.m. So there's a lot of planning that goes around that, how to describe it, how to encourage an audience to take part, how to prepare the right set of questions. What should my lead-in be? I generally speak for about a minute or two minutes at the start of the event. What should I say in setting the context? And then once the meeting is finished, I will spend some time editing the video footage missing out bits where there was white space unnecessarily, gaps, audio fluffs that are distracting. I will augment the recording occasionally with book covers and other diagrams or emphasizing. So that can take a fair bit of time, planning and the execution of these events. I will also in the course of a week often write. If I've got a new book on the way, I'll try to write on average a thousand words a day can't always do that, but I quite often do. I will often go to other people's meetings too, to ensure I keep up to date, either online or occasionally in the real world. I used to go to London, Central London, on average maybe three times a week for various events at the Royal Society of Arts, the RSA, LSA, the London School of Economics, Nesta, or various other places. In fact, a large number of places so that I would keep myself current. Occasionally, I'll travel abroad and speak at events. Occasionally, I will engage with uh, clients who might be companies or government organizations, think tanks, or individuals who just want to secure some of my mind space for uh, something that's on their minds. Mm. These are some of the things I'll do.
0: Mm. And have you, you've had the opportunity to travel a lot around the world? in your kind of career regarding futurism? Well, I have
1: traveled to quite a few countries. I'm glad to travel. I learn when I travel. So I traveled very significantly, it turns out, to South Korea in 1982 in search of the meaning of life, I can say, as a youngster looking for alternative points of views. And when I was in South Korea, I met somebody who was absolutely fascinating, and she became... In due course, my wife, and we've been together for 39 years, shockingly, 40 years this year. And we like to travel too, together, to experience the world. It is uh, one of the pleasures to meet different cultures, eat different foods, see different landscapes, take part in different activities. But I travel as well uh, to give presentations or occasionally just to attend So I've been many times in North America, many times in China, Japan, Korea, India, all over Europe, different parts of Africa as well, and uh, South America. I did some of that in my three years when I was engaged by Accenture Mobility, which was 2010 to 2013. That gave me a broader
0: perspective as well. Mm. And um, it would be good to hear a little bit more about your time at Accenture. But also, I would like to ask, because I didn't press enough on it earlier, when you're talking about this, your work at Symbian, just to hear a little bit more about the operating system that you, I think, worked on, which at one point was one of the was the most successful operating system in the world. So, just because I don't think we've covered that that part a little bit, could you tell me a bit about Accenture and also your time at Symbian?
1: I see that time is important, not just because of my personal experiences, but what happened in the smartphone industry is a pattern that I think many other industries are going to go through as well which is a long period of anticipation and frustration and disappointment that the vision we imagined would eventually come true had been delayed and then finally there was the period of dramatic acceleration people draw this exponential curves the slow 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 and then oh my goodness why did nobody tell us this was coming Whereas in fact, we were all telling people here it was coming, but we were regarded as uh, deluded and uh, naive and uh, hyping and so on. So that did happen in the mobile phone space. In 1998, we had the vision that more and more people would want to have phones with applications in them, that they would have access to their online resources, they would have games, they would also... We understood from the beginning have educational value, they would also have a value for people's health in due course. One of the applications that was earliest on the mobile computings, computers from Cyan was uh, by TomTom, which was a navigational app. Early on, there was no GPS, but there were maps. And it was one of the most popular apps on the Cyan handheld. So we imagined that uh, Navigating would be important as well. So we had these business plans that if our investors, initially Nokia, Ericsson, and Motorola, later on we were joined by Panasonic, Siemens, Samsung. I think that's them all. I apologize if I've missed one out. And there were several rounds of investments so others invested more than once. And we had business plans every time. And the first few times we said we thought our smartphones would reach various volume sales and certain dates. And that our platform, the operating system that would enable these apps to work on all these different phones, that an app that was written for one of the Siemens phones would work with minimal change on a Samsung phone as well and so on that uh, would have various features by various times and we were delayed and delayed. We had lots of new things in each release, but we didn't have quite as many things in the release that we had convinced ourselves was possible and that our clients, our licensees, had expected. So there was lots of disappointment. And then by around 2004, 2005, 2006, the sales got larger and larger. So in 2001, we hadn't even sold a million such devices. So it was a shame because we had sold a million of the handheld computers before then. But I wrote a document inspired and in collaboration with some of my colleagues in 2001 that said, all right, even though we haven't sold a million yet, by 2007, roughly, there will be a hundred million such devices on sale. And here's why, and I laid out various stages in which uh, the devices would become more capable and there would be more applications and there would be more communities around the devices and because of network effects, more people would want to be part of these communities. And that turned out, perhaps by some good fortune, to be a very good forecast because some stage in November 2006, we did report that we had sold 100 million such devices and that was far in excess of any other Platform for smartphones at that time. Our competitors were various Linux offerings. There was the PAM Pilot software, which had done remarkable things on handheld computers, largely in North America. Uh, There were Microsoft platforms as well, but their sales were dwarfed. We had something like at least three quarters of the smartphone market. And that continued, and so that by another 18 months, from passing the milestone of 100 million devices we had sold another 100 million devices. So it went slow and then fast, and then by another three years, we had sold a total of 500 million such devices. So we seem to be on top of the world there. But there were clouds on the horizon as head of futurism, as the head of research, officially titled, I had argued that we should pay more attention to web-based development systems, that our software system was very hard for our developers to use. It was too difficult for our manufacturers to bring out new devices quickly. It was too difficult for new manufacturers to come on board the platform, ever be accepted it. And we had various projects on way to fix it, but we couldn't move fast enough. And eventually, Silicon Valley got smartphones, having failed many times before to deliver good smartphones. America was actually backwards with their mobile phone industry for a long time. The innovation came from Europe, Sweden like Ericsson, Finland like Nokia, but also from the Far East. The best mobile phones in the world by some counts were in Japan and then uh, Korea. Companies such as Panasonic, and uh, Fujitsu, NEC, Sharp, and others. And what happened in America, was a wild west of competing standards. There wasn't a single GSM standard. There were multiple different uh, devices, uh, wireless standards. And there was even the thing that when you received a call on your mobile phone, you had to pay for it. So people said, I'm not leaving my mobile phone switched on. If some idiot phones me, I'm gonna have to pay for that. So it took a while for mobile phones to become popular. And when that was changed, then more people started leaving their mobile phones on and more people started using it. And eventually Apple produced the iPhone in 2007 and Google came out with their platform with some phones in 2009 and more and eventually in 2010, they had sold 10 million devices. But it took them seven years as well. Android goes all the way back to 2003 when Andy Rubin had uh, formulated some of the ideas and originally got some investment. And Android as a separate unit was bought by Google in 2005, but it still took them five years to break through. So I'm telling this story, and I could tell a similar one about Apple. It took them a long time to be successful with the iPhone. People think they came out of nowhere. On the contrary, they had failed smartphone projects before the iPhone there was a disastrous joint project between Apple and Motorola called the Rocker, which had Apple software from their iTunes music platform and Motorola hardware, and it had the worst of both worlds. And it led Steve Job to the CEO of Apple to realize he needed to do things different. So in all three cases, Symbian's case, Apple's case, Android's case, there was a slow startup phase and lots of skeptics before there was a breakthrough that transformed the world. I told that story at some length mm. and there's much more about it in my writings. There's a whole chapter on that in my latest book, Vital Foresight, when I give lots of behind the scenes facts about what was going on. I also look at Microsoft's successes and failures in various technological innovations. The same pattern applies is applying to artificial intelligence. Many people, it's still not living up to its potential. People say, oh, it's failed. It's just being oversold by technological hucksters and charlatans. No, I think it is breaking through. It's already changing huge numbers of areas of lives and it's going to do so more. It will be the same with biotech. Today, we don't have any good anti-aging therapies. There are potions and pills. People spend a lot of money looking younger. That bit works. But actually being younger, there's nothing available yet. Lots of disappointment. But I think the underlying science is good. That's what I say as a philosopher of science. I think the theories as to how we can reverse aging are essentially correct in broad scope. We need to work out a lot of the details. And when that does happen, there's going to be a huge change, just like the change in which smartphones change the world in so many ways in 10 years or less, it's gonna be the same with AI, and it's gonna be the same with rejuvenation biotech. It will be the same in due course with nanotechnology too. It's another long story, but the ability to have molecular scale machines, molecular scale assembly factories. Foretold to some extent by Richard Feynman in 1959, the great physicist foretold in much greater detail in the 1980s by a MIT researcher called Eric Drexler that has also been delayed and delayed and delayed and there are many skeptics but in due course we are going to learn how to do that and that's going to transform huge areas of life too
0: Mm -hmm. that's really interesting and i just wanted to bring it back there before i forget to something you said a minute ago when you went to south korea i think you said you you went there slightly motivated by the pursuit to understand the meaning of life can you tell me a bit more about that adventure and what you meant by that
1: so like many a youngster I wanted to find some broader understanding about philosophies, religions uh, different wisdom and I'd already spent four years in Cambridge University by then, meeting lots of different groups and having my mind changed and enhanced. And I thought that there might be more wisdom in the Orient and I had the chance to go for a conference in uh, South Korea. And they have a different approach to all kinds of things. It was a third world country in those days, but they had a tremendous uh, zest. They had a tremendous heart, I might call it, uh, respect, and it was uh, remarkable. So I didn't come back with... Uh, different philosophy but I did come back with a broader appreciation of how societal change can take place and every time I've been back to Korea I felt it's progressed even more since so Korea was way behind Britain in many ways the first few times I visited but when I'm there now I often feel it's a much more advanced society than Britain in so many ways it's not a one-dimensional thing there are things we still do better in Britain probably but there are remarkable progress in South Korea as well. And so seeing things from multiple perspectives has been helpful.
0: Mm -hmm. So I wanted to ask you about your writing as well. You've read about 10 books, is is that right? I am the
1: author of about seven and the lead editor of three others.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, brilliant. So can you tell me a bit about your process writing a book? How do you get the ideas, plan it out? Who do speak to? I'm just intrigued by the process of writing.
1: A new book often arises from some dissatisfaction from a previous book, that there was some part that had not been fully explained, there was a bigger issue. So, for example, when I wrote my book on the abolition of aging in 2016, part of what I looked at there is what could prevent this better future coming into place what could hold up the adoption, what could hold up the development and then the adoption of these treatments. And one of the biggest blockages I saw was political chaos. 2016 was also the year of Donald Trump and Brexit. And whatever you think about Donald Trump and Brexit, I think everybody concedes that the caliber of rational uh, democratic decision-making was flawed. And on both sides of arguments things were far from uh, positive and the risk was that we would lose sight of rationality, we would lose sight of a bigger community and people would be dominated by shouting and by tribalism and partisanship rather than being able to genuinely appreciate the bigger picture. So at the end of the abolition of aging, I listed that as one of five things you could prevent us from getting to the better world. And I wrote a bit about it in that book, but I thought it needs more attention. So that led me to Transcending Politics, which was a big book with multiple references with all kinds of explanations about why a better politics is necessary, but also possible. But it was a big book and uh, people were a bit resistant to the careful academic tone of it, so I thought I'd better write a uh, shorter, more manageable book. So I wrote something called Sustainable Superabundance, you know, a nice slim book, as you can see. Mm-hmm. There are no references in this either, and so people criticised me for not having any references, but I argued that all the references were in my previous books. Mm-hmm. So each new book often is led on by some dissatisfaction about something that's not quite fully covered in previous writing. Then how do I write? Well, I have a broad plan for what the book will cover. And then I try to have a reasonable element of progress, certain amount on average per day. Sometimes, and I keep track of that in a spreadsheet so I can see. And of course, sometimes there are fallow periods when I get distracted, I'm on other projects. So there might be two weeks in which there's no progress at all, say. And then there might be another few days in which I write 4,000 or 5,000 words in a day. And after I've written enough, what I have done in the past is I have shared that online. I've asked the London Futurist community, transhumanist community, would you like to review what I've written so far? So I put them up as Google documents and I've had people raise comments in the documents. And sometimes that has led me to change what I write significantly. Other times they have helpfully pointed out what I've got typos of one sort or another, where I have been obtuse, where my language trips over itself. So I haven't used a professional editor, but I have been the beneficiary of a crowd wisdom from that. Mm
0: -hmm. And your latest book is called Vital Foresight. That's not out at the moment, is that right? It is, yeah. yeah. It's It's been out since
1: uh, June last year. Uh, Vital Foresight is... Very big book, as you can see. There are 600 pages when you count all the references. I didn't set out to do this, but I thought I need to set the case for doing foresight and the case why a particular philosophy makes sense of all the issues and can point us forward. So I call it not just transhumanism, but active transhumanism, Mm. meaning we should not just be sitting back and cheering from the sidelines yes, we're going to go to this. 5s future of super longevity, super intelligence, super happiness, super democracy, super abundance. But no, we are responsible for getting things done. So I wrote this at some length. Uh, In some ways, it's uh, rewrites of earlier material. I put it in a different sequence. I have got lots of new material as well. And it uh, tells the story of how to do, Futurism, how to do foresight, how to weigh up scenarios, how to be creative in uh, seeing beyond our biases, our prejudices, our limitations, how to evaluate these scenarios from multiple perspectives and look at the history of forecasters when people forecast things wrong. Does that mean therefore we are bound to forecast things wrong as well? What uh, were they doing wrong and how can we do better? And then I lead on to study of the industrial revolutions. I have one chapter on technology when I set out the four industrial revolutions. Then I have another chapter when I dig into the fourth one in much greater depth to explain to people, you know, you may think this isn't going very far and fast. You may think it's overhyped. And I look, by the way, at people who said the third industrial revolution was overhyped. Even the second industrial revolution, which was the adoption of electricity and other things to replace steam, that took a long time to get going as well, it turns out. So I look at a lot of the critics, early critics of the internet, the people who said the internet was never going to amount to anything. It was a nine-day wonder, and that it would be filled with cobwebs soon, and so on. And I look at why there was some justification for these views, but that when you have a broader point of view, the pattern was there for why the internet, the worlds of computing and semiconductors would have such a big impact. So that's the third industrial revolution. I look at the critics of the fourth industrial revolution and say why I think they are wrong. And then I accept the point that technology by itself should not determine its own future. We humans need to get involved. So that's where the philosophy comes in, philosophy in general, and then the philosophy of transhumanism in particular. Mm -hmm. And I have a candid assessment of the transhumanist community. I have a section on... The transhumanist shadow, which is various elements in the broad transhumanist community that do the movement more harm than good. People who are too fatalistic, people who are too uncritically rah, 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 people who discount the risks, who say, well, these risks won't happen, we don't need to worry about them much, uh, and so on. So I look at seven things in what I call the transhumanist shadow. And then I have a whole chapter on criticisms of transhumanism, criticisms which are I argue, unfounded, but I look at them in each case as about 18 criticisms, if I remember correctly, of transhumanism. It's too similar to eugenics, you know, there's fascist philosophy. It's too much of a religion. It's too much infested with hubris, wishful thinking, and so on and so on. And I look at all of these and I criticize them. Or I show the limits of each of these. And then I go forwards to the future, the singularity, the rise of artificial general intelligence, assuming we have done things sufficiently correct in the meantime, and the broader possibilities for humans. So it's a big book, mm. but I make no apologies because I think the different strands add up to a lot more than the simple sum of the parts. Mm-hmm.
0: How long does it take you to write a book such as that length, 600 pages?
1: I think it was about eight months. Mm-hmm.
0: I've got the whole records
1: in my spreadsheet somewhere.
0: Mm. Are there any or maybe even many views from some of your earlier books, views or opinions on things or forecasts or where things are going that that you've now changed your mind on? Well, I can look back at
1: presentations I gave in 2010 about the future, and I can see what I underestimated and what I overestimated. So in 2010, I was fairly sure we'd all be wearing Google Glasses or augmented reality in just a few years' time that underestimated the technical difficulties of these devices, that they could only give you an interpretation of a small field of view. You had to look in a very particular direction to see the information. I underestimated the the issues of battery life and uh, uh, recording, especially when you were recording It drained the batteries much more. So I think they will come. And I look at things like the HoloLens from Microsoft. And I think it will come. But it's been delayed even more than I expected. Even when I said technologies are delayed. I didn't expect this to be delayed quite that far. Mm. On the other hand, I didn't say much about deep networks. In fact, deep networks or deep learning was not even a name in 2010. It was coined, I think, in 2012 as a nice use of words. And in 2012, there were stunning breakthroughs in how that particular approach to artificial intelligence outperformed previous approaches. And that I didn't anticipate either. So that's a field that have gone faster than I expected, whereas others went slower. But I expect that in broad. I expect that uh, some things will be delayed because of complications and other things might uh, go faster.
0: Okay, brilliant and I wanted to also ask um, other, other authors apart from yourself you know, people you've read, what are some of your favourite books or favourite authors? Well, I was
1: yeah. uh, influenced strongly by the first book on nanotechnology by the writer I mentioned earlier, K. Eric Drexler he wrote a book called Engines of Creation which he set out the possibilities which have, have not been achieved at all yet so that's been delayed a long, long time for reasons we could go into as well, but it will come in due course. So that uh, raised my attention beyond just smartphones, that there would be changes in hardware. The next book that really changed me was by Ray Kurzweil, famous futurist, he's now employed as an engineering director at Google. He has a track record of an inventor of uh, many technologies, music synthesizers, uh, things that would help blind people to read, amongst others, and he wrote a book in 1999 called The Age of Spiritual Machines. He'd written a previous book called The Age of Intelligent Machines, and that was sort of sensible. You could have machines that were intelligent, but calling machines spiritual was a quite a stretch. But I read that, and in that he set out decade by decade for the next century, 21st century, what could happen. And that also raised my consciousness. Now, I've since Cooled a little bit on what Eric, what uh, Ray Cotswell has foretold. I think he is too locked in to uh, precise dates in a way that can't be substantiated. Uh, he does look at the negative consequences, but he always argues, "Well, we will easily overcome the negative consequences." You know, there are risks with uh, genetic malware. There are risks of biotech, but we'll use nanotech to solve that. Oh, there are risks of nanotech. Well, we'll use AI to solve that. Oh, there are risks with AI. Oh, we'll use a different AI to solve that. And he's very thoughtful, very impressive. He's a polymath and I still learn a lot often when I watch him speak or read him uh, his new articles. So he changed my views. But the author I want to give the biggest shout out to is the person who is the executive director of an organization I mentioned right at the beginning, the Institute for Ethics in Emerging Technology. His name is James Hughes. He's a bioethicist based in New England. He wrote a book called Citizen Cyborg in about 2005. And he said there will be big changes in technology, but there will be political repercussions. So rather than just thinking about politics as having two dimensions, economic left versus economic right, in terms of what we should be redistributing, then there's the morally permissive versus the morally prescriptive, in terms of what your views on the role of women or same sex marriage and uh, so on. He said there's a third dimension that's going to become ever more significant, and it's the up down dimension, which is do you embrace technology to go beyond the traditional human capabilities? Or do you just say technology should only be about enabling people to live as an average human uh, aspires to? And he says, the bioconservatives, and he pointed to various people who had written reports for the then US President George W. Bush. There were people like Leon Cass and others who argued in favor of bioconservatism and said, it's good that we age and die. You you may not know it, but if you didn't age and die, it would be worse for you, and so on. So he, James Hughes, the author of that book, Citizen Cyborg, argued and said that we should get behind what he called techno-progressive point of view, which is uh, uh, absorbing the possibilities of technology, but then also using that to transform how we viewed the left and right of politics as well. So that was the book that finally made me think, I need to discuss this with more people. So at the end of that book, there's a reference to the World Transhumanist Association which James Hughes at the time was executive director of. And that had a website which said, there are people meeting in London. They call themselves Extra Britannia. They meet in a pub called Penderall's Oak in uh, the Holborn region of London. So I went and f- found them and they started joining their meetings. And as I said, three years later, I started running their meetings instead. Hmm.
0: Great, and so what are some of your plans with, in the future with, uh, with some with the organisations that you run? Have you got any plans far out from here?
1: Well, my plans uh, often lead in from dissatisfaction in some elements with my previous work. So this book Vital Foresight, I'm in the process of turning it into an educational course, which I call the Vital Syllabus. Mm-hmm. So there will be free, accessible, engaging material online, covering all the ideas, in this book and many others that have been touched on. And that has been fleshed out already. It's been, there's a skeleton that's been created of 24 subject areas, starting with the most important skill in some ways, which is learning how to learn, because there's so much change. And we have to be able to unlearn some of the stuff that we learned in the past, but which is no longer so useful, how to relearn. So that's section one, section two is communication, section three is agility and it goes all the way through to 23, is Landmines, and 24 is Ultimate Futures, with transhumanism and technology, and uh, lots of other things from my other books in there. So I'm in the process of fleshing out that syllabus, which I believe more and more people will find of value, and it may take three years. I'm also thinking of turning one chapter in this book, As usual, it's one of the final chapters, which I think deserves to turn into a book on its own. So I won't say more about that now because that's still in discussion with various publishers and various other people. But there's something towards the end of this book, which I think deserves more attention on its own.
0: Mm. And where can people find out more about London Futurists and uh, your consultancy, Delta Wisdom, or just about you in general? Where's the best place online to, to find out? So you can Google these terms and they should find thelondonfuturist.com,
1: deltawisdom.com. I am quite active on social media. I write on Twitter with D 2 which is my initials, David William Wood, written with the two Ws turned into W squared, hence DW2. That's my first love in life mathematics, reasserting itself. You can find me on Twitter on DW2 and you can find more about me as well on a blog that I write from time to time, which is dw2blog.com. But I welcome people to join the conversation at London Futurists. We are looking, I think, at issues that deserve much wider attention. And if anybody listening and watching to this discussion feels that they have something to contribute to that conversation, possibly as a panellist, possibly as a main speaker, then please do get in touch.
0: Well, thanks so much for speaking, David. It was great to ask you about your your life story and a bit about some of your opinions of where we're going in the future. Um, Thank you so much. It's really great to talk. Glad to go into these things.